How are we doing today? Good. Awesome. I love it. I love the honesty. Um, it's uh, entirely providential that um, we, we have a meal today because Angela and Levi are in Virginia visiting Angela's dad. So we get to eat today, Anna. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 16. We're going to continue our look into the life of David, a study that we began last week. It's been said that music touches the heart where words alone cannot. It has the ability to soothe the heart and bring a rush of powerful memories in a way that many other things do not. I can hear a song that I haven't heard for a very long time and be transported back in time to that moment or season that I was listening to it. And it happened this week. Uh, I was on my way down to Lancaster for a meeting, and uh, I was listening to a shuffled playlist on on my uh, phone, and a song by Tim McGraw came up on my phone. If you don't know who Tim McGraw is, he's a country singer. Uh, It was the year 1997. I had just graduated from high school, and I went a little bit country for a while, So Garth Brooks and Tim McGraw and George Strait were all on my playlist. And uh, I heard the song, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Like, I can remember vividly where and when I was listening to songs like this. I was in my car. I was, at the time, working about an hour away from where I lived. And that trip back and forth would be full of music like this. Um, so it was like I was in a time machine. It wasn't, I wasn't driving a DeLorean. You got that? Bad dad joke, sorry. But, you know, it's interesting just how music has that strong ability. Music that is directed towards the Lord has the utmost ability to strengthen the heart that is weak and the soul that is downcast. We read in Scripture that the way that God had created the world, that even the creation sings to him. God created us with a voice to declare his praises. It's not a matter of if we should sing. It is one of the most essential ministries of the believer to sing to God. We are, as Paul exhorts, in Colossians 3.16, are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that is why last evening was so special for us as a church, if you were able to be here, just to carve out some space in this week to sing praises to God to praise Him for who He is, and to celebrate what He has accomplished for us through the cross. Music is the thankful response of His goodness to us. It's an offering of praise that draws us into His presence. 
there are times that I will uh, wear a particular song out depending on what I'm going through, what, what I'm facing, what I'm thinking about, all those kinds of things based on the lyrics and also based on the melody of the song as I'm reminded of the goodness of God and the power that He has to reign in my life. Music is meant to be a powerful tool in the hands of the believer to ascribe worth to the Lord and to minister to our hearts. And music is also meant to be shared in the congregation. It's meant to be a community thing. We're not meant to be isolated soloists. We're meant to corporately gather and to lift up the name of Jesus Christ together. God was faithful to remind us of this because he's given us a songbook in the scriptures. There's a whole section in the Bible devoted to songs to God. It's the book of Psalms. And there's 150 of them. Now, those are the inspired ones. But we know that Israel had many other songs that they sang. And there's many other songs that are found in the Old Testament. There's songs of Moses and and the prophets that they would just kind of take time to stop and and praise God for his thankfulness. We're going to read in 2 Samuel 7 when we eventually get there a song that David sang before the Lord. Another song that's recorded. We read in, in the Psalms that there are times of thankfulness and times of distress. There's songs of lament. And there's songs of confession of sin. Of these 150 songs that are collected in Psalms, over half of them were written by David, the man that we're focusing our attention on in this study. And this morning, as we look into the text of 1 Samuel 16, we're, we're drawn into the ministry of music that David had over the, the lives of those around him, and particularly a king that was going through a very difficult time as his heart was hardened and how David's music ministered to his heart. Now, last Sunday, we were introduced to the world that David uh, was called to to be the next king of. It it was a, a world, especially for Israel, that was full of turmoil They had just gone through a long period of having judges, many judges that were called by God over the span of, uh, I think, a few hundred years um, that was just overwhelming for them. And it's because they did what was right in their own eyes. And every time they took a step of selfishness, God would judge them. And then they would cry out, and God would raise up a judge to guide them. And then they would return. And then they would be brought close to the Lord. And then they would depart again. And there was this downward spiral. And, and, and eventually, the, the nation of Israel went to the last judge, Samuel, and said, we want to be like the other nations. And so God relented and gave them what they wanted. And he gave them King Saul. Saul. And we briefly looked at Saul's leadership. I mean, Saul will be the king for the rest of 1 Samuel. So these last 14 or so chapters, it's going to cover a span of 15 years. 
But we know that Saul was a tragic leader. It wasn't very long after Saul was anointed king that he departed from the Lord and he took matters in his own hands and he was doing things as king that no king should do. He was leading in a way the worship, the, the people in the worship of God. He was offering sacrifices. He was not waiting on the Lord. He was not waiting for the priests to come and he got in the way. And so Samuel came with a rebuke and judged him. And then he did it again. Saul just kept doing things his own way. And in the final rebuke that Samuel gives him in 1 Samuel 15, he assures him that God's Spirit is departed you. That he was not going to be able to lead with the power of God behind him. We read in last week in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, when David was anointed as king by Samuel, this little nobody... This shepherd that was anywhere from 12 to 15 years old when he was called. I mean, he, he's rather young in the fields. He was the brother, the son that was forgotten when Jesse, his dad, and all the other family went to visit Samuel because he called them there. That when he came, we read in verse 13... Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. That's all we read. We talked last week that David likely, and well, we don't just know likely, David went back to the fields to take care of the sheep. He went back to his day job. He was anointed. The spirit was upon him. And he returned to where he was. We read that the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. And then in verse 14, we read this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. These are fun verses to unpack. Boy, there's a lot here. No longer did God's power rest on Saul. He's going to lead for another 15 years, tormented by God's disapproval. He's not going to have many high water moments for the rest of his life. He will not have supernatural power to lead him in the monumental task of being king of Israel. The contrast of verses 13 and 14 are clear. The spirit of the Lord came on David and was with him for the rest of his days. And the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. In fact, commentators believe that these two verses in this chapter in 1 Samuel is really the hinge of the whole book. The first half is the trouble that Israel was in, and the second half is how God was going to provide help through the leadership of King David. Saul has been rejected. David has been approved. 
But before we get too far into the text, I want us to notice something uh, about what happened in verse 13 and what happened in verse 14 as it applies to us today. And it's, it's concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because I think it's so vital for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is, what He is doing, what He once did, so that when we read passages like this, we don't walk away with some kind of fear like, uh-oh, could this happen to me? Because when you read verse 14, it says, the Spirit of God departed from Saul, and that God sent a terrorizing spirit to Saul. And so you wonder, hey, could this happen? Can this happen in my life? Can God's Spirit leave me? And theologians, for centuries, for 2,000 years, since the completion of the New Testament, have studied and, and, and weighed on their thoughts. And, and today there are churches that say, yes, the Holy Spirit can depart believers. That if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you have God's Spirit, that it is possible that God's Spirit can leave you. And I just want to say to you this, this morning, that is a lie. That cannot happen. It's not even in the realm of potential. That if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, that if you have believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and what He has accomplished on the cross for your sins, God's Spirit is inside of you, God Himself, forever. He's not going to leave you. He will not depart from you. We see in Acts chapter 2, what is referred to as the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit came upon those who were gathered in the upper room. There was some 120 people in that upper room, and the Holy Spirit came upon those who were in the faith, the day that Peter preached an amazing message of repentance and forgiveness found through Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, when the church began, the Holy Spirit has been given as a gift to the church to indwell us and empower us for the life that God has called us to live. Paul says this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the last half of that verse really drives home the point of what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and has sealed us for the day of redemption. That sealing act is kind of like putting God putting His stamp on our lives saying that what has been begun will be completed. And my promise to you is the gift of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's seal to bring us to the point of our final redemption. But what's interesting is what Paul says in the beginning part of the verse. You can have the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer, and you can grieve the Holy Spirit. God can live inside of you And by the way that you live in your sin, you can live in such a way 
that the Holy Spirit is grieved by your fleshly, worldly thoughts, words, and actions. It's strange, right? That we can have God living inside of us and yet we can still live in a selfish way. And yet that's the the tension that exists in every born-again person as we die to self and are made alive to Christ. As the old nature is at war with the new nature. But here is what I want you to know. That while there is that tension that exists between the old man and the new man that is made in Christ, because you have God's Spirit inside of you, the new man will win. God will be victorious in your life. You may grieve Him at times. And and you'll know that. Because His power won't be as evident in your life. You'll have conviction for your sin. You'll, you'll have godly sorrow. And his power and ability working through you will be diminished. Because just because God's spirit is inside of us, it doesn't mean that we're going to do everything perfect all the time. That just the way that God wants us to do it. God's inside of us. And now he's saying, trust me. Walk with me. Let me work in your life. Let me control you. And so when we read in 1 Samuel 16 that the Spirit came upon one and departed another, we need not be worried or afraid that that could happen to us. That was a specific ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We read all throughout the Old Testament times when God's Spirit would come upon people for a specific time in ministry, a specific calling, something that God wanted them to do, and God's Spirit would come upon them, and when that task was completed, the Holy Spirit would leave and move on in a different way to a different person. But again, Paul says in first, or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And so for us as believers in the New Testament age, belonging to Jesus and being a part of the church, we have God's Spirit once and for all, in our lives. The Holy Spirit is inside of every believer. He's not going to depart us and move on. He's going to stay with us through every season of life, through every trouble that we face. He encourages, He empowers, He teaches, He convicts, He secures us, and He transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are sure to make it to the end because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. That is God's promise. And what do we know about God's promises? They are true. He will not change his mind. Back to 1 Samuel. Not only did the Spirit depart from Saul... An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. 
there was a vacuum created in Saul's life. The spirit was gone, and an evil spirit came in. And what's interesting is, who sent the spirit? And God did. And you might say, Pastor, God is not concerned with evil. Like, he can't be a part of evil because he's good and holy. So how could he do something like this? I mean, that doesn't sound like something God would do, right? Well, this happened because of Saul's blatant, continual disobedience. We read about this in a different way when we read about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. What do we know about Pharaoh in the time of Moses? We read that God hardened his heart. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart in a stoic, passive, Pharaoh, I'm just going to do this, and you're going to have to receive it no matter what? No. God hardened Pharaoh's heart as it was already hardened towards him. Much like when this evil spirit came upon Saul, it wasn't that Saul was this innocent bystander, just kind of walking through life and, you know, as a, as a punishment from a fickle God saying, well, you're going to get an evil spirit and you're going to face judgment just because I say so. No, not at all. We know that Saul was guilty of taking matters in his own hands often. And because he valued his prominence as king over lifting up the name of the Lord, Saul did not take the Lord seriously, and he bore the consequences of his unfaithfulness. Now, what's interesting is that the spirit that God sent terrorized Saul. It terrorized him. That word terrorize means to fall upon, to startle, or to overwhelm. And if he was here today, I would still share the same stories. But my son loves to terrorize us. He's watching on the live stream, so he's getting this now. What does he like to do? He likes to sneak and hide behind every corner and jump out and startle us. And it's like in that moment... There's all sorts of emotions going on inside of me. This term evil, though, that we read, that this evil spirit that was sent to terrorize, to startle, to overwhelm Saul, should not be understood in moral terms alone, but rather an indication of the misery and distress that was upon Saul. The spirit that was sent upon Saul by God as judgment for the consequences of his ungodly behavior brought serious, strange consequences upon him. The Lord is certainly sovereign over all the events of what's happening here. And so in verse 15, we read, Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Well, yeah. I mean, but what we see here in verse 15, it was evident to the people around Saul. This wasn't some kind of private battle that he was dealing with. What was going on in the king's life at that time was evident to the people that were a part of the king's court. Now, people have tried to figure out over the years, how was Saul acting? And they've, they've put all sorts of labels on his behavior. 
psychological behaviors. And, and I would just say, that's not for us to determine. There's not enough in the text for us to make some kind of clinical judgment on how Saul was acting. What we do know is this. It is abundantly clear that God's favor was not upon Saul, and he was bearing the consequences of that loss of favor. But how he was acting was evident to those around him. And so they came to him. Verse 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you. That he shall play the harp with his hand. And you will be well. And so as we look at this text, it should be evident for us that when people depart from God, their troubles really begin. That when we wander from God, that when we ignore Him, that when we walk away from His truth and the community that He's given us, that when we try to do things our own way, That when we admit in ourselves that we can do better than God can do better, trouble is really going to begin. And so these servants gather and they say to their, their king, Saul, we have a solution for your problem. It's evident that you're going through a tough time. And basically what their solution is this, good music will cheer you up. Good music will cheer you up. In fact, it's interesting in studying this, archaeological records show that the ancients believed music healed mental diseases. In fact, they would play music in the community when there were times of riots and trouble. Now, this is far different, but if you've ever had a baby and they wake up in the middle of the night fussing and crying... What do we often do for them to soothe them? We sing them a lullaby. Can the baby understand the words that we're saying and put it all together? No. But it's just the mere tone and harmony that can minister to their troubled heart. And so they make it known to Saul what he needs. And Saul agrees with them. Saul said to the servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And then in verse 18, we read, then one of the young men said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the flock. So David's with his flock. He went back to the flock, even though Samuel had visited him and said, this is what God is doing and anoints him. And he felt the the spirit of God upon him. And then he goes back to his flock. He's tending the sheep. Saul was in need. The servants of Saul say, we know a man. And Saul says, bring him to me. Can you see God's providence in all of this? One is rejected, one is anointed, and God is sovereignly orchestrating the events where these two men come together. This is all God working. May we never forget that the Lord is sovereign over our lives as well. 
When you think, how will God remember the Lord works all things together for good for those who love him? You might not know when or how, but the Lord does. Now, it's quite possible. This is just, this is in the realm of possibility. That due to some of the clues in the text in chapter 17, which we'll look at next week. Chapter 17 is David and Goliath. I mean, gosh, we know that story from when we were knee-high to grasshoppers, right? That in that passage, in the information that we read there, compared to what we're talking about here in chapter 16, it's quite possible that the events of chapter 17 happen before the events that we read here. Because in chapter 17, Saul doesn't know David at all. But here, there's this sense that maybe he did. And it's quite possible that in this narrative, due to the importance of the contrast between the Spirit of God coming upon David and the Spirit of God departing Saul, that the narrator of 1 Samuel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reordered the events so that we understand the contrast of what is going on here. So regardless of whether they bumped into each other before this or not, We know that the servants went after and found David. And Jesse, his dad, says, okay, you go. The king wants you. And what does Jesse, his dad, do? Well, Jesse took a donkey in verse 20, loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat, and sent them to Saul by David, his son. He brings gifts. The king has beckoned his son. And Jesse's like, hey, you're going to go before the king. Here are some gifts. I want you to give them to him. And so we read in verse 21, David shows up. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So David does his thing. He plays his harp. He sings his songs. I mean, he's been practicing this for many years to this point, even as a young man, tending his father's flocks, singing to the sheep at night out in the wilderness of God, connecting with his heavenly father. David plays his harp. He attends him. And we read, as a result, Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Now, this love wasn't selfless. Like when we read that Saul loved David greatly, Saul loved David greatly because Saul got something out of David. And we know that this love won't last very long. When we move beyond chapter 17, David and Goliath, we read that Saul, Saul's son and David become close as brothers. And we read that the king hates David and wants to destroy him. So it doesn't last very long, but he has a strong affection. This word loved is used elsewhere in the ancient world to describe a political relationship. Saul loved because it benefited him. The armor bearer, the position that he was given, David was given, was one who took care of the armor of another. He was a part of Saul's court. He was in the inner circle. This was a position of honor and one that connoted a close relationship. 
And verse 22 indicates that Saul asked for permission from Jesse for David to stand before him. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David now stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. Basically what he's saying is, hey dad, release him from his responsibilities in the field. I need him more than you need him. He needs to be a part of my court. And so Saul invoked his ability as king to seek David's constant presence. Saul needed it because he would have these fits of being terrorized by this evil spirit. And just a note on that evil spirit. It's quite possible in the realm of all that's going on that it's a demonic spirit. And you might say, that doesn't seem right that God would be ministering in that way. But isn't God sovereign over all? He absolutely is. Demons are fallen angels. Satan himself can't do anything outside of the realm of God's sovereignty. And so it's quite possible that this spirit that came upon him at different times was a demonic spirit that was sent to terrorize him. But because we have the Holy Spirit in us, that can't happen to us. We can't be possessed by another because we are possessed by God. We have God's Spirit inside of us. So whenever this would happen, Saul would call for David. And Saul would be refreshed, as verse 23 says. And he would be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. David's music, his songs, and how he sang were refreshing. He played for Saul till Saul breathed freely. And so again, we see the power of music as Saul's heart was put at ease. Now that's no different for us. One of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, said this. He said, or he believed that the Reformation, the the changing of the guard from following what Rome was teaching in Catholicism to really getting back to the, the true written word of Scripture, that that wasn't complete until the saints of God had two things in their possession a Bible in their own tongue that they could read and understand, and a Psalter. And what was a Psalter? It was their hymn book. Martin Luther believed that they needed the book that could lead them to a deeper understanding of their faith, the Scriptures. And they needed a companion book for them to sing in thankful praise for what they know to be true in the Scriptures. Church, may we never lose the place and value that music has in our own lives. Not just any music, but music that lifts our hearts out of the despair and calls us to declare the sound promises of our unchanging God. What we do here before I get up to preach the word is not a warm-up act. Right? You need to be just as prepared to participate in our singing as you do to hear the word. Because we're not just merely forming melody out of our mouth 
because that's kind of what we do and everyone else seems to be doing it. We are the congregation of God fit together as one voice to lift up thankful praise for the redemption that Jesus has given us. And I would say that part of that preparation of being ready to be here to sing begins long before you ever walk through the door. Like, it's not like we all just grab a, you know, a bottle of water and gurgle a little bit and say, okay, me, 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 I'm ready, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah, you don't want that. It means that long before you're taking care of your heart by praying and asking God to search you, confessing your sins, acknowledging this week where you have gone wrong and and giving that over to Jesus and receiving his forgiveness, repenting and restoring yourself in relationship to God and walking in here confidently holding on to the surety of the gospel that who you are in Jesus Christ is not determined by what you do. It's determined by who you believe in. And when you gather here, whether you can sing well or whether you just like making noise, you give it to God. Offer it to Him. Whether it sounds great to the person next to you or not, shout it out. Because you're not doing it for the person next to you. You're not doing it for the worship leader. You're not doing it for the praise team. You have an audience of one. Listen, you're not auditioning for American Idol when you come in. That ship has sailed. You're making melody with your heart to the Lord. Give it to Him. Give it all to Him. If you're ever, like, not in that place where you can sing to God, and I've been there before, and it may not necessarily be due to anything specifically that I'm struggling with, like uh, a specific sin in my life. It just might be, I'm, I'm going through a difficult time in my spirit. Like, I'm not feeling it. Do you ever not feel it on a Sunday morning? Just remind yourself of the beauty of the gospel. How much God loves you. Resting in how much God has done for you. Believing in how much God is securing you and holding you. And he will bring you to the end because he's inside of you. And sing his praises. So let's pray. I'm sure the worship team's going to be coming up for our last song. And maybe as they come, right, you're going to sing louder than you never ever sang before. We're going to be blowing out TV speakers on the live stream because people are going to be like, oh my gosh, what's going on in that place? Isn't God certainly good though? So let's praise him and thank him for that.